Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Error monitoring is by Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Hey there, this is Adam, and I want to tell you about our friends at Linode, our trusted place where we host everything. Everything that we do is on a Linode cloud server. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Get one of the fastest, most efficient SSD cloud servers out there. Nearly a half a million customers trust Linode, as we do too. Once again, linode.com slash changelog. And now onto the show. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. Today on the show, we're talking to Reese Arkins about Renovate App, which is automated dependency updates. It's flexible, so you don't have to be. We talked about Renovate's configuration, who's using it, the languages and environments that are supported, self-hosted versus SaaS, and how that plays into supporting his open source auto-merging, being a GitHub app, and being in the GitHub marketplace, and also building this as a business on someone else's platform. So Renovate is a project that hit our radar uh, because of Ping. And specifically, we have to give a shout out to Nicholas Young, whose name and avatar rings a bell, so I think he's probably submitted before, uh, who told us you got to have Reese Arkins talk about Renovate Nicholas gave Reese, he gave it this compliment. He said, it's the first GitHub app that has changed how I develop software by easing the frustration of managing dependencies for the most part automatically. And he gets bonus points for not saying automagically. One of my, <laughs> my least, one of my least favorite nerdy words. So that's quite a compliment and we'll get into that. We're happy to have you here, Reese. Real quick, we do want to take a quick moment before we do that and talk about ping and some changes that are happening with Ping. So for those who don't know, Ping is our open inbox on GitHub, github.com slash the changelog slash Ping. And for years now, we've taken uh, submissions there, ask us anything, style posts, questions, feedback. Uh, most importantly, I think show ideas. And yeah. if you've been listening to the changelog for a while, a lot of our best shows are because of our community who submitted the ideas to Ping, uh, this show being uh, one of those. So uh, we love that. We want that to continue happening. However, we've also been taking news and article submissions like projects, articles, blog posts. We love those as well. Um, we no longer want those on ping, however, because we've actually built uh, a version of that into the website where you should submit instead. Adam, you want to tell them about that? I think it can summarize best with the update to the readme, which says this is no longer the place to share projects, articles, and news because changelog.com slash news slash submit is the new URL for that. And what you can do when you go there, it will actually ask you to sign in and create an account. But the important thing is, is that you can share with us like links, articles, whether you wrote it or not, and that gets served into Changelog News, our, our homepage, and then potentially can hit Changelog Weekly, which is a highly sought after beloved newsletter we ship every single week. So if you're not subscribed to that, I would suggest you go to changelaw.com. And you will see an option to subscribe and, and just follow that uh, follow that lead and do that. So ping is is for show ideas and the evolution now is to share your news through changelaw.com slash news slash submit. 
There you have it. So Reese, let's get to renovate. Let's hear your story and this this app that uh, at least you got one happy customer, Nicholas Young, who's it's changed his life a little bit. So tell us about renovate, what it is, and the backstory of how it came to be. Yeah, thanks, uh, and thanks to Nicholas, of course. Uh, yeah, so renovate is a um, is a command line tool. Um, that has also been adapted to also be a GitHub app, which is what Nicholas refers to. Uh, but primarily, it's a, it's a command line tool uh, that is used for automating dependency updates for projects uh, such as JavaScript and Docker files and, and a few things like that. And it automates it using uh, branches and pull requests in your existing project to try to fit in with the workflow you already have. Very straightforward. How about the backstory? Why did it come to be and how did it come to be? Yeah, so Renovate is not the first to actually do this. Um, I was using another tool called uh, Doppens for a project of mine, and it was a web app. And uh, Doppens was really good, but I broke the app into, you could say, like a monorepo uh, with Docker containers where they each had their own package.json. And that meant that I couldn't keep using the automated pull requests from, from Doppens. And uh, none of the tools that were available at that point around the apps supported having a package JSON, you know, the, you know, a dependency file that was outside the root of the, uh, of the project. So I just didn't have it anymore. And a few months later, I had a problem which was affecting uh, up to 5% of users, weird errors getting caught um, in my, uh, you know, century reporting. And I, probably spent two days trying to figure out what was going on. It was actually another developer one day, myself a day. And eventually we discovered that it was a really strange bug that had been fixed by Google's Firebase like a month earlier or something. Hmm. And I just decided never again, you know, because that was like a, a really, I, I couldn't even tell exactly how it was impacting users. You know, you're, you're getting you're getting exceptions thrown, but you don't know for sure what they're seeing or what's failing for them. And... Um, you know, two days of developer time as well. It's just, it's too much. Mm-hmm. So, so I decided to hack together a script and, uh, basically, you know, almost like a bash script with, uh, you know, git commands, git branch, git, you know, git pull, git checkout, git push, mm. uh, combined with just a little bit of JavaScript to make the pull request. Just want to comment on the fact that so many awesome projects begin with, so Gosh. I decided to hack together a script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. How this many was, times do we hear that? Lots. Yeah, this is absolutely one of those cases of like necessity or whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, so so I worked out how it could be done, but I, I kept, you know, again, it was like another week, another week. So I actually, I paid a freelancer. I just advertised it and found someone who wrote that. And and by the time he finished it, I realized that I didn't actually need to use Git you know, they actually GitHub themselves provides like a Git API. So somewhat, um, you know, for no real good reason, but I decided to rewrite it then myself using pure API. And there it stood and it worked. And uh, so at that point, it was still just a script that I was using. And I was thinking like, maybe I should open source this. And, uh, And then I had the idea that I would open source it for like SEO reasons search engine optimization <laughs> mm. because I was working on a real estate side. I still have it. And, uh, I had this thing where whenever I would open source something, I would pick a name that was relevant to real estate. And so I already had, uh, one project called, uh, lint condo, um, which mm. was a lint container for Docker. And that one actually got 
in you know docker.com's newsletter and things like that and i got some links nice. back to my blog uh, another one i released was called home inspector um which was uh you know one another like screenshot regression testing and uh for this one then i hit on the name renovate and it was only when i got the name i thought that's a perfect name mm-hmm. and uh that i decided to open source it and i thought well you know i blog like an announcement about it and i and uh there'll be a few sites interested in it and i get some links back to the site because it's just a bootstrapped real estate site with no advertising budget and uh, that was basically my first reason to open source it. So it came out of necessity why I wrote it, I open sourced it for search engine optimization. Um, but then people actually discovered it and used it. Hmm. And um, kind of like out of like obligation or pride, I, you know, when they would say, this is really cool, I just need this, or can you add that? I started doing it. When was that? Like what year was that? That was about, that was about one year ago. That was, um, that was around like, I think January of, of 2017. Okay. Curious before you go further, what's the, how does the SEO impact the naming? Like, give me, maybe I'm missing it. What, what is, what is the reasoning there for that? Well, I mean, Google still fundamentally works on, um, you know, backlinks, you know, like if you're important, people link to you. Right. And, uh, but then Google of course tries to, um, work against like gaming of the system. You can't just spam a bunch of links or spam keywords and things like that. Um, but like if real legitimate sites link to you, then, you know, that kind of counts and that's what they use to decide whether you should be high enough or not. And, um, but part of it though, is that they also are smart and they filter out if, if links seem to be completely irrelevant to what you're doing, such as in my case, a real estate site. But if, if people link to you with an anchor that says like renovate or home inspector or condo, Mm. um, then, you know, in my like theory, that should hopefully be good enough to, um, to sort of to bypass that a little bit. So, and I didn't really see anything wrong with that because, you know, people are linking because it actually is something useful. And like, it's always fun to have a naming convention. No, I yeah, love it, you yeah. Do. So yeah, so I that was what sealed it for me was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna release it and I'm gonna give it the name Renovate and people are gonna link to my blog, you know, which is hosted on the same domain as my website and uh, that'll be worth it. You know, better than paying some SEO person, you know, like a thousand bucks to like, give me some like spam kind of links that don't look spam. Like I may as well actually do something useful. So does it actually feed back into your real estate site too? Is that part of the point? Uh, well, it was more just that where, where, when I put it on the blog, um, you know, the blog saying, here's what I wrote. Cause I didn't have any renovate app.com or anything. Then um, the point was that people would link to that, gotcha. um, which describes it. And of course then go to GitHub and use it. But apart mm-hmm. from that, it wouldn't really have anything to do with, I actually had a separate sort of blog page on the, uh, on the real estate site called like our tech to separate out like real estate yeah. blogging from, you know, open source work. So here's a, here's a, a big picture question related to all of this. Mm-hmm. And something that I've thought about sometimes is um, when we're talking about real estate, like, you know, domains are online real estate. And something that I'm a believer in is like owning your own real estate and not uh, you know, putting all your your pearls on other people's platforms. So mm. you know, syndicate, right? So um, like with changeall.com, we write for our website and we syndicate out to these different media, to Twitter, to uh, Facebook, to even micro.blog now we're syndicating so RSS. Mm. But like everything comes back to that one place and... Uh, that's really what you're doing when you blog about it with your on your real estate site is you're linking everything back to there. But one thing that we all of us developers don't do is we don't host our own Git repos. We don't host our own documentation. We don't host our own stuff. And so ultimately, we're giving all of our our 
the in, the last mile to GitHub because we're hosting our actual things there where people are linking to and spending their time to GitHub. And I know, yeah, I think it was Patrick McKenzie back in the day, Patio Eleven, um, who's become kind of internet famous in developer circles slash entrepreneurial circles because of all of his writing around entrepreneurship and what have you. Um, and he made a split testing Ruby gem years ago and he refused to put it on GitHub or maybe it was on GitHub as well. But like everything he did was he hosted that it was open source Git, all that, but he hosted it on his website. And the reason was the reasons that I'm saying. So I'm curious if you guys have had thoughts mm-hmm. about that and, and if we're all just kind of given all of our Google juice to GitHub. Yeah. I mean, not, not, I don't have too much concern with that part because I think it's partly to do with um, how how closely related your source code is to like to your main sort of website. Even if you're going to self-host, you're most likely going to end up putting it on like you know git.renovateapp.com or something like that. So it's still yeah. technically going to be mm-hmm. like a separate uh, domain. Um, you know, I think GitHub did a really great job of sort of capturing the open source market. Um, all that years ago and uh, you know opinions differ about how much they keep doing to like retain it Um, Mm -hmm. you know and you can debate for a long time about like does the community owe GitHub or does GitHub owe the community I mean they're hosting stuff for free and you know they don't put ads and things like that they don't sell you details so you know you're not quite the product Mm, yeah I don't know about that (laughs) What, what do you think Adam you know, that's a good question because we link out to lots of open source. And whenever I have a chance to link to somebody's landing page, which is usually their domain mm-hmm. versus the mm-hmm. repo, I will more often than not link to their homepage. And then in the details of promoting this new thing or describing what's going on, here's also the source on GitHub. Because I feel like what you feel like, the hub and spoke model, I feel like. People should own their content and I don't have anything against GitHub and the open source. I just right. feel like the legitimacy strategically of that, it's smarter. Yeah. I feel like giving it to them first because a GitHub readme looks like GitHub. It doesn't look like a branded version of X. And sometimes like Homebrew, you go to Homebrew's website, beautiful looking mm-hmm. site. Documentation's clear. You can easily see that it's on GitHub. You can see all the other things they can advertise. You're you're removing their ability to better communicate to their community by only linking to their repo, you know, which is right. essentially getting yeah. a repo. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Like when I, so these days um, I you know, have renovateapp.com, um, which essentially is for the app part, not so much the open source. Um, I mean, as in it's intended for people who don't care too much about the source, they want to use the app. And uh, I try to like filter out all the stuff about how to host it yourself and so on. Cause that just confuses people if you give them, options that aren't actually valid to an end user. So I, I tend to adjust where I link to depending upon like the audience or what they're after. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly would want to self-host my, my Git. Yeah. It's a matter of convenience in that case. Yeah. I'm yeah. not going to do that. I, yeah. That, I'm, GitHub owns that. They do a great job. And like, like we said, you know, do we owe them or do they owe us? You know, are we the product? I, I think the open source community is the product because I mean, GitHub is, they're giving it away, but at the same time, they're getting so much traffic. They're getting so much uh, authority. You know, think about all the Google juice that's going to them, Reese, that you're after. Like, yeah. imagine the the exact opposite. Like, we've been linking to GitHub for years. Not that we're a big source for their juice, but multiply us by, you know, 10,000 other media outlets. That's, right. you know, 
linking to GitHub. They're getting a lot of benefit. Yeah, it's yeah, an great. ecosystem. Everybody yeah. gets everybody gets things out, and I agree. It has to do with convenience. I guess uh, more. I guess my takeaway from this is kind of what you said, Adam. Specifically, like have your own homepage. You know, sure, host your code there. On I mean, all the tools are there. Your 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 clones can be off GitHub or what have you, but. If you have an open source project and it's not just like a throwaway, like I have open source stuff that is just throw it up on GitHub and whatever. But if it's actually the thing that's in support of a goal of yours, like it is the case with Reese with his renovate and his other tools where they're trying to yeah. you know, provide some benefit back to uh, his business. Well, have a homepage for that and have and own that domain. Right. So if GitHub goes away or you ever want to move off it or whatever, you're not tied to that URL. You're tied to a URL that you own. And then, sure, host the source code where it makes sense. Cool. Um, well, that was off topic. That but was I a fun aside, though, I think. <laughs> I mean, <that's- laughs> These are the things that I think about, and then I start, hear somebody talking about it. I'm like, wait a second. I've been thinking about this, too. So, yeah. I, um, well, I, I'll put a little bit back on. I would say that with open source, um, I've, I had, did actually notice that there are companies that do try to use their open source to sort of bring attention to themselves. You know, mm-hmm. they host their open source page on their main domain or on a domain important to them. Um, I've seen others, but I forget now, um, that do sort of use names that are aligned with their business. I don't know if they're like me um, and and they're like desperate for you know, backlinks <laughs> for, or, for or, or if they just think it's, you know, cute to have a naming scheme that reflects, um, your, your company. But, um, I think a lot of companies could, um, probably do better to, you know, host yeah. their own open source sub page and use that to focus them. Um, I agree. Focus attention a bit more. Absolutely. So that's the backstory of how Renovate came to be. You created it as a scratch your own int shell script. You open sourced it for, uh, Google juice. And because you had a cool, naming convention going that you wanted to, by the way, renovate's a perfect name. So Love I know it. why you, uh, hopped on that and felt good about it. It's a very, very plays very well, especially now knowing that you're in the real estate business, it makes it even more poignant, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah. And, uh, from there, you know, it cried a few little like rocket boosts, I think to be where it is today, you know, at the very early stage. And, you know, one was when one, uh, enterprise user mailed me just out of the blue and said that, you know, like the tool was actually like really important to them right now. And they'd hate to see it just sort of die. And like, would I consider a way of getting paid for it kind of thing? Like, you know, they want to keep, see it alive and they understand. And, uh, you know, I declined that. I said, thank you very much. It's not really necessary at this point. Um, but that was like a really good, um, motivator that, you know, people mm. felt that, uh, found it that useful. And, um, the second one was when another, a person from an enterprise posted about a year ago and said, like, would you object to switching to the Jest testing framework? Because, like, it's much better and uh, it would, I'd be able to submit, like, quite a lot of tests for you if you did that. And I'm just looking at that from my mobile. I was on holiday at the time and just going, okay. So I think I literally replied, like, well, sure. I mean, I can't say no to somebody promising me to add tests kind of thing, like try to reinforce, like, okay, <laughs> you know, that's what you offered. And sure enough, uh, you know, switched it to Jest, improved a lot of things. I, I was not a testing expert and improved the test coverage a lot. And that was basically, I think, him um, thinking that, well, we use this and I don't want to see you breaking it on me. So I'm going to add tests for the stuff that I know is important to me so that you at least get, an, you know, you at least get notice if you break stuff that I need. Um, but that was also like really shocking to me that someone would do that. 
Um, it was probably like two days worth of work, maybe. Um, and that, again, kept me going. Um, and then the final bit, which sort of turned it, was that um, I had multiple people saying to me, even still, though, they said, well, this looks really great. And this is actually exactly what I need, but I'm not going to use it. Um, and they said, like, if you ran it as a service, I'd pay you to use it kind of thing. But, like, I, I don't want to be running another server, another thing I have to monitor to watch. Um, and that was really interesting because when I heard that, you know, a few times, I thought, oh, that's that's interesting. And that's where I sort of got the idea that, well, maybe this has like a a long-term yeah. um, future as like part service, part software. Cause there's, it, a, hmm. there's a couple topics yeah. in there. It's like, it sounds like this was your, and I don't want to say this negatively. Maybe it's just say it is the easiest way. Like this sounds like this is the first, in quote, successful open source project you've had. So something yeah, that's definitely. like opened your eyes to you know, how open source works and how to, in a, you know, interact with the community or even take in suggestions like, you you know, switching to Jazz for testing or whatever. And then also it, it's opened your eyes to how potentially this open source thing that you created as a scratch your own itch that you never really seemed like you were like, hey, I can make a business out of this now has some entrepreneurial business opportunities for you that you're now, you know, either planning or investigating, like at least opening your eyes to it. So twofold there's like, your first step into open source, and then now it can be something that can actually turn to a service. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, these were sort of like turning points. Like if I didn't have those motivations, it may not have, I wouldn't have put probably more time in it, would not have got as many people and and so on. So, uh, you know, chance and luck um, plays a big part in this sometime. This episode is brought to you by Gliffy. Gliffy is the easiest way to visualize any idea. Use Gliffy to diagram UMO diagrams, flowcharts, or charts, wireframes, and more. And in this segment, I'm talking with Mike Sample, a fellow listener of this podcast, as well as the engineering manager at Gliffy, who leads their drawing platform team. And I asked Mike why he thinks Gliffy is an important tool for developers. Uh, why I think Glyphy is important. Uh, I've been involved in a, a tremendous number of development projects, and invariably, you know, that that process involves a lot of the front loading of imagining what a complex enterprise software system looks like. You're dealing with a lot of people. You have a limited amount of time to ship product. The, both the product is complex, the process is complex, and most importantly, the communication is very complex. And what I found uh, with Gliffy and what others have found is here's a tool to visually represent very complex processes in a way that everyone can immediately kind of coalesce around. It provides this kind of common visual language for understanding really difficult topics and getting everybody on board so that they can see the road ahead. Yeah, I agree. Being able to communicate visually and having this visual artifact to instantiate new ideas as well as document a source of truth so that whenever you need to go back to a workflow or something you haven't touched in a while, it's, it's that source of truth for you. So tell me this, Michael, who's using this tool? This is not a novel observation. I'm not the only one who uses this. It's a very easy tool to use. 
four and a half million people use this tool for all variety of purposes for creating org charts and flow charts and UML diagrams and floor plans, et cetera, on and on. I use it with my own team. Whenever I worked on any large enterprise software project, I always spend a little time kind of charting things out. Sometimes that's a pen and a napkin. You know, before I knew about Gliffy, now it's Gliffy. And it's easy to use. It's on a web page. You know, I don't have to download software. I don't have to, you know, learn some complex interaction in terms of manipulating shapes. It's just drag, drop, attach, you know, move, label. It, it's very, very simple. And it's extremely powerful in terms of getting everyone to understand something at a very high level. All right, it's easy to get started. Try it free in Atlassian, inside Confluence, or Jira, or online at gliffy.com slash changelog. And as a special bonus, our listeners get 25% off one year of Gliffy in Confluence or Jira. And to get started or to find those details, it's all at gliffy.com slash changelog. All right, Reese. Well, the the front of the package says automated dependency updates. That's a very simple sentence, but undoubtedly there's a lot that goes into providing that either as a tool or as a service. Can you tell us, unpack it for us and tell us how Renovate does what it does? Yeah, sure. So um, one quite interesting thing is that the tool behaves um, basically the same as the app. The app is actually a thin wrapper around the tool. There is no uh, fork going on or different behavior. Um, so you could basically like uninstall the app and go back to self-hosting and, and all the pull requests you have open and things like that will still be like valid and updated and so on. So pretty much everything I described covers both the tool or, or the app. And uh, the way it works is that it, um, at, a, at a base, it runs on a schedule. And I normally recommend to people uh, one hour, but some enterprises run every 10 minutes. And uh, it scans each repository for package files that it understands, like package.json, Dockerfile, uh, Meteor, package.js files, um, Google's uh, Bazel uh, builder as well. And just mm -hmm. recently added uh, NVMRC and Travis. YAML files because people wanted to be able to upgrade their Node versions in sync, um, and they can actually that Node 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 versions can be found in many different places. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it um, it scans for all the files, it extracts the dependencies that it finds, um, it applies a cascading config to it, um, which gives you a lot of power but also complexity. Um, and then based upon how you've configured it, it looks up updates um, and determines what you should be made aware of. You know, so it builds a list of, okay, well, this is what we need to do. Checks what's already there. And if anything needs updating or creating, then it does it. Um, and it actually does this by keeping all the state in the repository. So the tool itself, you could say is stateless in that it doesn't need any state file which could go, which could be corrupted or out of date. It actually um, uses, you know, GitHub's, you know, Git repository and the list of branches that have been um, created or pull requests that have been closed. And it basically uses that as its state. Um, and so um, the naming of branches and the naming of the pull request becomes quite important because they kind of become like lookup keys. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so um, it just, it, it runs. And one difference in the web app is that uh, it's been, um, you know, it's been webhooked. So it listens to uh, GitHub 
webhooks for every repository it's installed on. And if that um, webhook event looks meaningful, such as the person's updated a package.json file or they've updated their renovate.json file, um, then, uh, then it runs again on demand. Um, to um, to update it, so so then it's quite nice because if people you know edit their dependencies, all their all their pull requests get updated if necessary. If they change their config, then again everything gets updated if necessary. Um, mm. And then it also has a listener for npm uh, js, you know, so it basically gets um, updates uh, or notifications um, using a kind of subscribe notify approach of CouchDB. Um, so it gets updates whenever any new package is updated and. Uh, um, we do keep a little bit of state, but it's in a way unimportant state. Um, it looks for any repositories that, that had that dependency at the last time they ran. And if so, again, it puts them in the queue. Um, so it means that um, if a package you depend upon on npm JS gets an update, then uh, you can expect to see a pull request within minutes. Um, this gets particularly helpful um, when you have multiple repositories that belong to the one like organization or the one project. Um, an example is um, in the in GraphQL. There's a lot of a lot of GraphQL repositories using Renovate and the GraphQL guys. And you know they'll often do an update in one upstream repository and then that flows down to a downstream one where it needs to get merged and that might flow down to another one. And um, thanks to the webhooks it means that you know that can be done in kind of minutes. Um, and so mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like an alternative to the monorepo because, you know, at least you're not having to update it manually and it happens within minutes. Um, and that's a little kind of, that's a little like a value added add on of the app that you can't really do in like a stateless command line tool. It would need to right. be, you know, alive and listening and you have to make sure it doesn't crash and all that kind of stuff that I take care of with the app. Okay. So that's not exactly the way that I was thinking that it would work in terms of the, it's, it's just it's checking live, so to speak, each time it's run on a schedule or if there's a webhook that comes in, of course, it knows that it probably sends the new version of that particular dependency. But when it does a full run on a, on a specific project or repo that you have, it's going to go to all the, the, the sources and I guess in many cases it's just NPM and just check for the most recent version of that library. And it's going to do that for each of your dependencies each time you run it. That's right. Okay. With, I, you yeah. know, with some caching and so on. Yeah, so caching definitely important there. I was thinking of more of like the library's I.O. approach where they're basically creating, you know, a huge uh, dependency graph in the sky of different libraries mm. and versions, and they have all of that data on their own. And so then when you, I guess then when it runs, it would kind of already be pre-existing, but that would require a centralized service and all that. So... Okay, very cool. Potentially even a lot of unknown, you know, knowledge you didn't really need to have. You know, Reese's version yeah. is like on demand. And so it's, you know, it's not more pragmatic for what he's up to. And, you know, Libraries IO's mission is much bigger in terms of yeah. what they're trying to do. But yeah. yeah, the stateless aspect of it, where the state mm -hmm. is really in the Git repository itself, um, it makes some things difficult to do, um, but it, also provides huge numbers of benefits because you don't really, and you, you reduce the risk of kind of like corruption or state mismatches or things like that. Um, given that every time it runs, it ensures that the correct view is there right now. So to give you an mm -hmm. example, um, if there was some kind of error, it might be, it might be my error. It might've been a server side error, like a, you know, bad response from, uh, 
from GitHub when we looked up a change change log dot dot markdown. Yeah. Um, so if a pull request was created and the content of that pull request, which said, you know, we're updating you from two dot one to two dot two, and uh, the change log is empty, um, if the next time we run and that problem's been fixed, or maybe the person wrote the change log, then that pull request gets like patched. So um, because every time it runs, it ensures that everything is kind of like correct at that point in time, it, it makes it quite like self-repairing. And if it like crashes halfway through for some reason, mm-hmm. um, um, then uh, there's, there's, um, there's, no, there's no type of crash I'm aware of that causes any state problem that requires manual intervention. It's also, I would think, would make the programming model, like the conceptual model in your head as you're writing that, which is a, a complex thing to run through, especially with assuming mm. having those transitive dependencies and everything. It's more simplified because you're guaranteed a known state at the start of every run, right? Yeah. It's all there. It's not going to change as you're running. Yeah. I got a question on that front, Jared, since you mentioned that. Uh, do you ever, considering how complex this is and it's, potentially always in your head Reese. And now that it's, and it's been open source and other people are contributing, do you ever put a visual to some of these things that like, it's difficult to talk through? Cause maybe a visual can say like, you know, this is how the model works in a visual standpoint. Do you have things like that? Is that important to you? Uh, I visualizing it, workflows for this. But it isn't currently there, but it is, it is quite a good idea. Um, I mentioned earlier about it has a cascading config. Um, yeah. and you know, I, you know, in my mind, I, I think of it as like, I try to, I use a term like ridiculously configurable or something, meaning that you can, you <laughs> can control the functionality so much, um, to the point that you can do things that are even like silly. Like you can, you can <laughs> r- write a rule that says, you know, for like, patch versions of this exact dependency inside dev dependencies in this package file, you know, then do this kind of thing. Like you can, because it's, you know, like CSS, it cascades. You can, you can have global rules. You can have rules per package. You can have rules per path. You can have rules per dependency type. You can have uh, then catch all rules for packages. So you can use like regular expressions to define your, your matching rules and things like that. Um, because I found that so many people have a lot of like, um, you know, in in their requirements, they have a lot of like, if else, if else, if else kind of requirements themselves, you know. So mm-hmm. like they'll start off by saying like, uh, you know, I, I just want to get an update every week. And it's like, yeah, well, that's easy. Just add, you know, this preset, like schedule weekly. And then they're like, oh, yeah, but like this package I need, that's my own package. And you're like, no problem. Okay, so add this exception to that rule, you know, add this package rule. And then, oh, yeah, but. I only want to auto merge the minor ones, not the major. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. So then you set this, you know, so when people have the freedom to describe, you know, exactly what they want, um, then they end up having quite like a wicked set of requirements. You know, when, when people (laughs) realize that like they are in control of how renovate behaves, then they start kind of getting more and more advanced. And people, some people have got like amazingly complex, um, configuration files that renovate, you know, dutifully implements and honors. Hmm. Yeah. I noticed on your sales page or on your homepage, I should say you have a, use the adjective unopinionated, which seems like it's the opposite of what most softwares as a service or even, you know, frameworks or whatever it is. People try to sell their software as opinionated. And most of us appreciate opinionated software because it has opinions and that's like making decisions for us. 
And I found it interesting that you explicitly say this is unopinionated. And it sounds like the reason for that is because there's so much variance in the way that people want to handle their dependencies that like, I guess the 80% solution is, is not good enough. It is exactly it. The, the, the variance is huge and it's, it's very, um, almost amusing at times because I see people at the complete like opposite ends. You know, I see people that want like the fire hose approach separate everything and then you see others that want to group everything together you see people that want to have ranges in their package json and others say no let's lock this down to you know pinned um exact versions um you see people that want to have a log file you see people that um say oh, i don't want to have a log file for this project and things like that. so the the opinions of other people um are very wide and you know i added a i don't know if you saw this one but i added a kind of like a motto for the tool uh, maybe about a month ago, half as a joke, but um, it's warming on me and I'm thinking of keeping it. And the motto of, of Renovate is flexible so you don't need to be. Mm. And because that basically describes how I view with the users. Like, yeah, I don't want to be in arguments with them, convincing why they have to have a log file or they should be pinning or things like that or why they should separate them so that mm-hmm. you know one bad apple doesn't spoil. I, I just want people to be to be able to do what they want to do. And then maybe over time they'll realize, ah, yeah, like – grouping all of them together every week basically always results in a broken build because at least one thing breaks and I end up merging nothing, you know? So the person that at first is very resistant and say, well, this will be disruptive, you know, changes their mind and says, okay, well maybe we'll just group all the minor updates then, you know? And then over time they'll be like, yeah, I'm still getting a lot of breaks and, you know, all this disruption they thought would happen by having separate pull requests actually is outweighed by the disruption of them having to, look through a pull request with like 12 different upgrades and figure out which one broke versus, hmm. you know, if you put them separately, you know, and configured them to auto merge or something like that, you wouldn't have that problem. But, you know, I'm kind of proudly in that sense, uh, like flexible or unopinionated. It's like, you want to do it, you can do it. Like, I don't, I don't want to be in the game and trying to talking you into why you should do the one way that I think is best. Right. You let people learn on their own by, hmm. by trial and error. Definitely though. Yeah. And and for sure, like not everybody's going to um, you know um, converge on the same behavior either. Um, uh, you know, there's definitely I was still ask that like is the, but you know, but is there a best practice that you know what it is, and you're just letting people? Everybody's going to eventually get there because if that's the case, then you might as well just you know start preaching and like get look, people a, there a, faster. A, <laughs> look, occasionally yes. So um, like for example, I think that you should always have a log file. But there's some very smart people um, who've written a lot of great software better than mine who think that um, libraries should not have lock files Mm. because then they think that, you know, you're, if you're not getting the random roll of the dice when you NPM install, um, like your users are, then you're going to be, you know, seeing something different to what they see. Yeah. For example, that's their, their argument. Mm. Um, There's other things like, I think that uh, pinning your dev dependencies makes a lot of sense. Like the reason why you don't pin dependencies at some times is because you have downstream users and you don't want to be unnecessarily restrictive of your downstream users. Right. Um, they may end up with duplicates or, or whatever, but your dev dependencies never leave your project. Um, and it makes sense to be like, yeah, this is the exact dev dependencies that we know, you know, are working for us right now. I've definitely been in the situation as an end user of a library trying to upgrade and the library I'm depending upon pinned their dependency right too tight 
Whereas there was no reason for it besides that's just the version that they were on when they last released. And you could go run their test suite against the new, even if it's just a patch, I think it was just a patch and it works just fine. Mm. And it's like, if they would have just loosened that or not had it at all, then I would have been able to upgrade without having to bug them. But because they did pin it, now I need my dependency to unpin it or update before I can even continue with my work. Yeah. 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 What is the process of pinning? What is that? Um, so at least in renovate terms, that's when, uh, you install renovate and renovate says like, well, now that you're automating this kind of stuff, um, you can pin dependencies. And, uh, that would mean that for example, um, rather than having like a range that says ES lint 4.0.0, you know, the carrot, um, that instead you would say like ES lint 4.2.1 or something like that. Um, and then at your choosing based on your configuration, um, when you want to update ESLint, you can do so and you might upgrade to 4.3.0 or something like that. Um, ESLint is, itself is maybe not a good example, but a better example might be say, if you use like, like ESLint, uh, 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 config, uh, like Airbnb or something like that, because those ones are quite, you know, opinionated and the whole point um, of many of the releases of those, um, you know, presets for ESLint is that they're introducing new rules or stricter rules, or they're catching, um, they're catching something bad that they were missing before, you know, so the whole point of a linter in a way is to break your build, but it's not very nice if you kind of have like open ranges and no log file. And so, you know, users come along and run install and try to run a test and they find that like the lint fails because a new rule got introduced, you know, without explicit you know, approval or merging. So that's mm. an example of where like you want to pin that down because like nobody gains from just having like a random new version um, appear in some people's computer while, you know, others have a, have a cached older version and say, no, oh, it works on my machine. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, nothing but trouble. So we've been talking specifically in the context of uh, NPM and package.json. We haven't asked you yet if Renovate supports other package ecosystems or if it's just NPM. Yeah, so the two major ones are um, NPM and Docker. Um, but it's definitely in, you know, my goal is that Renovate um, becomes a kind of a universal tool um, universal in terms of language and as well as in terms of, of platforms, because like apart from GitHub, it supports already GitLab and VSTS and Bitbucket support is like in a pull request. So uh, my goal is to make it cross platform and cross package manager. So um, we've already added uh, Docker support um, and there's requests for, you know, others like, you know, like Python or, uh, you know, Java ones like you know, Maven and things like that. So, um, yeah, the goal is to make it essentially like a universal um, yeah. approach that. Did you have that goal from the start or is it at least I, I, when I think of expanding beyond, you know, kind of where you are, I think of, well, yeah. I hope the architecture is set up to be pluggable to a sense and not like, okay, in order to support uh, Python, for instance, we're going to have mm. to rewrite, you know, 60% of our code base to do that. Yeah. So it, it definitely was not uh, in my foresight at the start. Uh, mm -hmm. like many of the features of most of the features of renovate they've come from users suggesting it it's been very much like a user driven um thing and i almost every time a user wants a feature and i figure out a way to kind of gracefully add it 
I kind of breathe a sigh of relief that whatever choices I made previously <laughs> weren't too limiting. Um, so yeah, it's a bit, again, a bit of, a bit of luck there. Um, it started with, um, NPM only. And then, uh, someone came along and asked if I could support Meteor. And because Meteor itself was really just referencing NPM dependencies, um, it was like 30 lines of code in about six different files and it was done. Mm. Um, when Docker came along, that one came along because people were chatting in some, maybe a blog post or something, you know, it was in a discourse discussion, something like that. And they were talking about the challenges of keeping Docker dependencies updated, in particular, um, the um, hashes. Because even though most people use Docker tags, you know, like even if you use a tag like, you know, 8.9.4 for Node.js, um, that itself, that's not an immutable tag like an NPM. Like if 8.9.4 or something gets published to NPM, you know that that's always going to be the same. Whereas in Docker, those are like, those may be, may look like a semver, but it's really just a tag. And you can change mm. anything underneath a tag. Um, you know, so the only way to have like, immutable references in Docker is to have like a SHA-256 hash, which is like enormous and it's very unuser friendly. And uh, someone actually commented that like, well, it's a pity like there isn't like a renovate for Docker and and like sort of mentioned me or something like that. And that's how Docker support came about because I thought, yeah, that's really good because, you know, in when we look at like package JSON dependencies, in a way you could argue that we're just automating something that people could do manually. Like it's, you're, auto you're, you're automating a feasible manual job. Mm -hmm. um, when Docker and you have these big long hashes, um, that's starting to get to the line where it's like, this automation is now essentially making something possible that really isn't feasible manually. Mm. Like mm. looking up hashes and pasting them in and not making a mistake and things like that. That's getting a bit beyond what's reasonable. And that's why hardly anybody actually uses hashes. Whereas now when people say use uh, Docker files with renovate and they start with, even if they have like node latest, but even though they want to like, you know, do it that way, at least now it'll, it'll pin node latest, you know, at hash. And so every time node latest actually changes, you get a pull request that kind of tells you it's changed. You can see if it still passes or doesn't break anything. So, you know, even if you want to be, you know, non semver versioning, you can still get updated whenever that hash is changed, you know, whenever that mm -hmm. tag on Docker Hub. Um, the I, I did some uh, re, sort of refactoring recently to make it a lot easier to add languages in. And there's actually, there's someone who's told me that uh, um, he thinks he can add in uh, Docker Compose support pretty easily now, given that there's already Docker there. So um, hopefully we'll see a lot more languages added a lot, a lot more quickly now that um, the code is a little bit more welcoming of like outside languages and package managers. Yeah. So you mentioned that with package.json, you're basically automating something that people could do manually. And I'll tell you uh, right now that you're automating something that I do manually for, for mm -hmm. our application, um, which is, you know, I just go in there every once in a while. So we have Elixir app, which also has JavaScript as all web apps have JavaScript somewhere in the mix. And so yeah. we have a mix.exs, which is the Elixir side, and we have a package.json. And uh, Adam and I were just talking about this, like keeping. How do we keep up with the Joneses? You sound like, frustrated well, just describing it. Well, it's not like it's fun. <laughs> it's not fun work. Um, yeah. I'm a. I do it manually. A because uh, I haven't been seen a compelling tool that will do it automatically. So this will work for our package JSON. I, I would 
implore you to add Elixir support or I would sign up for a on a list of people who will wait for that eagerly. Although admittedly not probably high on your list in terms of uh, language um, penetration, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a task, but it's one I'm, I'm a kind of a, I don't know, maybe a pedantic, like con- obsessive control or developer kind of person. And so like, I want to see what actually is changing and I want to like pick and choose. Yes, we want this update. No, we don't want that update. Um, and so I probably would have like the super complex configuration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, once uh, people learn that they can control it, they start like really going for it and adding yeah. exceptions to rules and it's a whole new react shave. And, yeah. 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 Um, look, one of the, one of the points, um, on the renovate, um, repository, I say like renovates approach where I tried to describe like, what's my kind of like philosophy. And the first point is that I believe that everybody can benefit from some level of automation. Yeah. And like, if the way renovate works now, whatever reason you say, that's not really for me. Well, mm-hmm. if it truly isn't for you, then I kind of think, okay, but I bet you I tell me what would be for you. Cause like, I guarantee you that absolutely no zero automation is, is not the best for you. I mean, like looking up the change log for each dependency, figuring out which file the source, you know, the source repository uses for change log, like, you know, and then clicking and then manually looking at the Delta yeah. you know, instead of just like a pull request that actually captures it. Yeah. That's why I think like everybody can benefit from some level of automation. Um, it's up to me to try and make sure that like I provide the capabilities that I can do that. Right. So there's some automation built into the, to the package managers, right? So I don't go and look up all the dependencies and see, like I run, either mix hex dot outdated or yarn outdated or something. And it will show like the version, right? The differences. And then what I'll do is I'll just like update one, run the test suite, see what happened. Maybe while it's running, I'll go check their change log. So like there are some tooling around that, but um, I'm sure I'm doing way more work than I should be. Yeah. There's a couple of different points to con- consider here. Like one, it's the wasted time. And potentially time is Which money. is money. Right. Yeah. So the waste of time and the money doing something manually that you could potentially automate if you feel comfortable with it or the extreme flip side is just not doing it at all. And it's like, hmm. I'm just never going to care. I'm just going to keep moving forward. And, you know, in your case, Reese, you'd mentioned like you'd seen some earlier on in the story, you mentioned how you'd seen some breakage and you're like, well, what's the thing? And it's because something wasn't updated. It's probably because you were not doing it at all. So you got Jareds who are going to do it manually until something <laughs> like this comes around. You got yeah. people who are extreme and want to want to automate it, but they want to start extreme with the configuration. They want to highly configure it and then start to maybe loosely unconfigure themselves because they've become more comfortable with it. Then you got those who don't do it at all. But you know, either way, you got this manual process that essentially wastes time and potentially a lot of money. I mean, can we quantify how much time and money has been wasted doing what is now auto? you know, automatable, if that's a word. Yeah, uh, well, it's pretty hard to quantify, but there's certainly a lot of different ways to look at it. That would be an interesting perspective on your site. If yeah. I mean, that's a selling point. Because like, if you could say, yeah. I'll save your organization this because you've researched, you know, all the, re- you know, just like uh, Nadia did, Jerry, with that hypothetical mm-hmm. number way back with open source, which isn't a point I'll, I'll drive home here, but look it up if you want to. But the point is, is like, you can like, to some degree... Get a proxy up, for yeah, it. Get a proxy for it and share that and then quantify it for each individual team or repo or project or company. And that, and let that be the selling point. Yeah. We could save you X. 
Yeah. You, I, you, by the way, you're right. I mean, this is getting into marketing, but yeah, I just was reading yeah. this week and I put the to-do that says like, you know, you should focus on like what it does for people, not like what the features are kind of thing. And I, that's pretty much like what you're saying now. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes, and I've been tempted to like put this on the webpage, on the, at least on the renovateapp.com is from Equifax. You guys know about, you know, the, you know, unprecedented uh, We're aware. leak of personal details. Yeah. Yes. So. So the the ex CEO who retired after it happened, when he testified, um, I think it was Congress, I forget exactly, but he basically said that well, this was caused because one individual in our development team did not pay attention to a notice that said we should update our web server version, and it's all his fault. <laughs> and wow! So basically, that entire leak of like half of America's social security numbers was blamed on like there was a single developer um, who you know missed a notice and like i mean that's a that's a process failure you can't you can't say you know i'm blaming one guy because he missed an email yeah. or something like that i mean it's probably more than email but but the reality is that like if you don't you know if you don't have automation you are going to risk having those types of things happen to you i mean you know you you kind of need to keep up with patches or you'll eventually have problems that's pretty much a, a solid rule this episode is brought to you by our friends at GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end. It supports modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. And their plugin ecosystem ensures GoCD will work well in your unique environment. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's free to use and has professional support for enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog. with renovate and really with all dependency management as you've found which is why it's so unopinionated the devil's very much in the details and uh, you can shoot yourself in the foot whether you're going the, the manual route probably the automated route uh, if you're going the don't upgrade route you're definitely shooting yourself in the foot um, but a lot of the details have to do with you know versions themselves their meaning uh, what I think is 1.0 is different from what you think is 1.0. I even have a hard time deciding when I depend on a library, how do I yeah. decide like how volatile is this? And, um, you know, what should I pin it to the patch? Should I allow up to the major? Um, what are your thoughts around that with versioning and, and what it all means? Yeah, thanks. So. I mean, to, to paraphrase a, um, a saying about democracy, I think Semver is the worst form of versioning except for all the others. And that's, that's basically how I look at it because um, there's lots of challenges, there's lots of things going wrong, but like right now it's still like the way to go. It's not anything to throw out. But the, the challenge is that um, I think there can be a mismatch between people's expectations about Semver. Like is Semver for like the consumer 
or is it for like the producer of the packages? And and uh, you use the word volatile, which is actually a really good one to to include there because you know Semver mm-hmm. works on major, minor patch, and in recent years there's been a movement to sort of clarify that a little as being like breaking feature fix, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mapping to the major, minor patch, but like to to give an example. Um, if I have a JavaScript library and I do nothing except for deprecate support for node four, yeah, you know, I just say, okay, I'm not going to support that from now on. Is that a major minor or a patch? Wasn't meant to be a trick question. Sorry. Yeah, I was I mean, say it's a deprecation. It's, so I would think that is a patch. You're not really doing, you're not even doing anything. Uh, no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a major because, uh, it is a breaking functionality. No, you're just deprecating it though. Ah, oh, oh, sorry. We're removing support for it. Oh, okay. No so, JS4 yeah, that would no, be a, it's no longer supported. I mean, I I'm not saying something breaks, but yeah. okay. So yes, yeah. if you're removing support, then yeah. that's definitely a breaking it, it, change. Like, you shouldn't keep. You should. Yeah. I thought you were just notifying notifying of an upcoming breaking change. Okay, so you you got me. So we saw that a lot. So um, we saw people remove four. So it's a breaking change. But I mean, if you're not using Node.js four, what's the volatility of that? It's like zero. I mean, it's right. it's not it's not a risk to you. Like none of the actual code change, it was just saying, well, we're not going to keep supporting Node 4 from now on. So if you're using it, don't upgrade to this major version. Now, the next thing is, let's say I add a, a new language support to renovate, but like I put it behind a feature flag, it's isolated into one file and it does nothing unless you actually enable that feature. Okay. Um, is, is that, I mean, that's a minor. I've added a feature, right? But yeah, like, what's but- What's the risk of that? It's behind a feature flag. It does nothing unless it's turned on. I mean, the risk to you as an existing user would be like, well, I don't care. I mean, like realistically, that that's that's a very low risk to you. Shouldn't that be how every miner is that there's new <laughs> there's new functionality, but there's no risk uh, in upgrading because I, I, ideally, but but you can also have features that might touch like twenty files <laughs> or things like that. So right. I'm giving you the example of uh, you know. The simplest of features, but it is a feature. Now, I'll give you the final example. Let's say I, okay. I've got like a, a, an edge case, a corner case that's really complicated and really nasty to try and fix. And it takes me like 17 files of touching to add like an extra state across the whole app to track to remove it. Now, that's considered a fix, but like that one's the highest risk of all of them because mm-hmm. I've had to touch 17 files. And I tell you, I've broken things with fixes. Uh, that's just how it is. Um, right. But like when, I, when I'm trying to work out my versioning, you know, I feel compelled by this, you know, concept that I should be following like breaking feature fix. You know, so, uh, you know, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm truly fixing an edge case, I don't want to call that a feature or people will say, well, who are you trying to kid? You know, that's, that's a bug. Well, that's a f- but the reality is you as the consumer all forget all of the breaking feature minor major. All you're trying to do is, like you said, volatility. You just mm-hmm. care like what's the chance it's going to break me? Yeah, exactly. That's really all you care about. And that's where Semver is kind of not working for us very well because as the end user, you just want to know your risk level. And like breaking feature fix is a good like general rule, but it lets you down in so many times. And Mm. that's the biggest problem we have with Semver right now is that like we could do a better job somehow and I don't have the, you know, the implementation idea. We could do a better job of the producers being able to communicate risk to the consumers and, uh, you know, the major and minor patch by using feature and fix, um, that's that's not really working very well today. What if we could add, so instead of saying, well, let's throw Semver out and do something, I know you're not saying that, but like, mm. let's have another standard that's better. 
Um, what if we added more metrics in addition to Semver? So that still is there to communicate the intentionality of the release, right? Is is yeah. the feature? Uh, what was the first one? Feature or something fix? Major yeah, minor breaking patch. feature fix. Yeah, breaking yeah. feature fix. That's our intentions. So we continue to do that. We release things according to our intentions. Yeah. But we have tooling around the history and the changes and all that. And so maybe in addition to that, you have additional metrics like this is a this is a patch according to what it did but it also you know added 17 files and touched 60 percent of the code base that would give you yeah. like the, the things that you're describing to me yeah because like we can automate all that that could just i mean that's what exactly our tooling does already yeah yeah flesh it so out. yeah i mean that's again that's why i think that's why like i kind of really firmly think that Everybody can need a little bit of automation, even if it's just something that's giving you a report about the like estimated stability of this mm-hmm. fix. You know, is it a typo or is it you know seventeen files? Yeah, yeah. I like that. Everybody could use a little automation or automatability. <laughs> things what you said. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Reese we'll, we'll these one liners, man. Yeah, we'll quote you. On that. <laughs> he, he's flexible, so we don't have to be. I like also that you talk about the risk management too, because that's something that you don't really mm. consider. Is like that's one thing Jared and I talked about in the pre-call was like, you know, it's essentially risk management of like how much, how, how far you're willing to go, like how configurable you make renovate for yourself. Yeah, yeah. curbing yeah. risk management. And the ultimate extreme is this auto merging. Yes. Feature, yeah. which seems scary to me. Can you tell us about that? Because that's like, you know, going back to our conversation yeah. months ago, Adam, about looping with. Uh, that's right. Tim McLean. Uh, thank you, Tim, uh, where they would close the loop on their uh, on their uh, diabetes machines. What are those called? I'm dropping the ball on it, but. Jeez, uh, uh, I don't remember. The uh, ultimate was to close yes. the loop where it would actually regulate things for you yes. um, in your body. And that was scary. Auto merging, auto merging to me is like, okay, at least let me look at the thing before it gets merged. But uh, yeah, if it goes well enough, tell us about that feature. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so to give you just some perspective, so um, yeah, well, auto merge is where um, you give renovate the permission to merge a new version, you know, to your master branch or whatever is your base branch, if it passes your tests. Mm-hmm. So you do these for ones that you're confident of. And for example, like dev dependencies, uh, you know, or if you're updating Jest, you're updating ESLint. I mean, if you've got a new version of ESLint and all the tests pass, I mean, are you really going to inspect anything else? You know, so the yeah, rule exactly. that we, we use is like, if you were just going to click that merge button anyway, why don't you save yourself the trouble? Um, and if you want to really get out there, there's the option to do what we call a branch auto merge, where it just creates a branch. And if the test pass on the branch, it does a merge onto your master without even raising a pull request. So you yeah. reduce your noise. So that's that's auto merge. And uh, right now, actually, when I look at like the statistics, we have about a two to one ratio between manual merge and auto merge. Um, so like that's like thousands a week are being auto merged by people. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's people are feeling safe enough to be increasing that. Um, nice. That's an interesting metric too to use for getting people's buy-in to, to say, you know, what the ratio is between the risky, which is auto merge to the, you know, the Jared's that will inspect it manually and, or just do it the other way. Yeah. Yeah. Like I try to force myself. I just, whenever I like merge a pull request, I think to myself, have I ever like looked into that? Like, have I ever spun up a VM and checked that it still works the whole search this, that, or am I just clicking merge? I mean, I'm waiting for someone else to find it. And if the answer is like, 
I'm not actually spending that time, then, you know, I may as well, you know, I may as well let the bot be, you know, negligent, not myself, if, uh, uh, if that's the way I'm going to be. Especially, I mean, if you're branching, you're testing and you're merging and then you're merging back to master. Yeah. I mean, it's fairly easy. It is get, you can roll back. I mean, yeah. right. I mean, so it'd be different if it was like a permanent change you could never re, you know revert back to. But I guess if you're yeah. several commits down the line and maybe two deploys later, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's too far back to, to yeah. really do that. Maybe it gets more complex infinitely, yeah. but for the most part it is Git, And that's the point of Git is to be able to roll yeah. back changes. So um, to, to give you a little insight into the, like the future of renovate as well is that um, what I want to do is augment that such that, because now we have some scale have, um, so there's now around 5,000 repositories using renovate on GitHub alone. Um, so that gives me some really good statistics. And uh, what I want to be able to do is allow people to configure auto merge rules that say, well, if it passes uh, my tests and passes, you know, an expected number of everybody else's tests, then merge it. Um, I mean, if for ESLint, you don't really care, but say if it's a new version of like, you know, the Angular core or the React core, um, then it would give you the ability to say like, you know, auto merge it if it passes like, you know, 95% of tests. Um, or in the future, you might say auto merge it if, like 30% of everybody else has already merged it, you know, mm. to allow people to have these kind of metrics that give you more like feeling of surety or safety. Um, I think that that's sort of, uh, yeah, that's part of the future of the automation. That's really interesting, actually. I mean, you're using the wisdom of the crowd and like past performance to say 90% of people, you know, auto merge this. Yeah. Yeah. Where would that UI surface at? Um, well, it would basically still be configuration. I mean, uh, that you can configure th thresholds. That that's uh, that's. But my I mean, where would you communicate that that uh, that information, like the the wisdom of the crowd? Where would that be communicated? Oh, in the pull request. In the pull request. Okay. And uh, mm -hmm. I I saw a, a nice trick uh, that uh, T J Holowaychuk uh, uses for something he does in GitHub polls, and uh, he actually embeds SVG files, you know, as an image um, into GitHub issues. And uh, you know, if you're using his GitHub polls, and uh, that is feeding back to a Lambda function that polls DynamoDB. And so basically it gives you like a dynamically updating, you know, issue comment where you mm. don't have to rely on a bot to be continually refreshing you and saying, okay, now 843 people test it. It's actually an image. And the image, every time you refresh, pulls the latest number from, you know, from the backend. That is super cool. Can you get us a link of that in action so we can include it in the show notes and check it out ourselves. Cause that's a great idea. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, it's a really, it's a really innovative idea. Yeah. I'm actually considering, you know, making half of the pull request being essentially like a text SVG <laughs> so that, you know, you can kind of be able to dynamically update the information in a pull request description, um, you know, graphs and so on without actually needing to continue to be like hitting the GitHub API to be, you know, annoying people by popping it into their, uh, their news mm -hmm. feed or whatever. I think it's interesting too, how, uh, hackable svgs are yeah i've seen some really interesting yeah. stuff like this included as well as i think the way code sponsor did their thing with uh with svgs like that was really inventive like yeah no one would ever thought of that and eric did and that was really cool mm. yeah i'll just sorry if i can just add one more thing i think one of the challenges with the updates and this is the the hesitance that like everybody has or sometimes it's the fatigue they have after the initial you know um positivity is that the updates become like a bit like a fire hose and I think that, you know, automation 1.0 is sort of like, you know, whenever there's an update, here it is. It's in your face. Um, but 
I've continually worked to try to have ways to reduce that noise. And so auto merging is really one of those because like if we can auto merge it without you needing to do something, um, then that's one. But other ways include uh, like grouping and scheduling. So for example, you can say like, don't submit any new pull request uh, during our working hours, um, which also has a benefit, meaning that your CI, um, your CI machines can not be, wait, you know, holding you up with, you know, application code during working hours as well. So um, grouping, scheduling, auto merging, these are all ways to try to kind of reduce that noise and I think reduce people's frustration um, that, you know, you don't have to have the fire hose. Mm-hmm. You know, if, somebody's, if somebody says to you, are you interested in getting healthy, you know, and you say, yeah, and then they say, okay, well, the only solution is 5 a.m. boot camp every day. And then you're like, ah, uh, you know, that's a little bit extreme. And so if you say to people, are you interested in keeping updated and they say yeah and then you say okay so here's what's going to happen i'm going to hit you with a pull request every single hour of the day <laughs> you know then that's all that's like the equivalent of this 5 a.m boot camp so right some people actually some people want it some people want that but um by having that flexible configuration they can just be like you know what let's make dev dependencies weekly let's make them monthly or something you know they have that flexibility to be able to just schedule things down I want the version that's likened to the machine that you walk into and it has a nice like rubber uh, <laughs> belt that just jiggles. You know those things? They just jiggle the fat yeah, right off. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. not give real, us, Jared. Give me that version of automated <laughs> dependencies. Just, the fat, oh, just jiggle the fat right off my app, will you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going there, but you didn't. That's a good one. I like that. My, my app. Adam. Yes, your app, your app. Well, you know, Reese, I think maybe I'm jumping the gun here. If we have more to talk about in this subject, we can. But I think, you know, this is during this conversation, I've been revealed through discussion and and your excitement for this, that there's a serious business here for you. And you potentially accidentally stumbled on an open source itch that could very likely be a business. But that's kind of scary because you're going to build this business potentially around somebody else's product. And, you know, kind of volatile ecosystems and Jared asking you for Elixir support. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. How much money do I have um, is the question. <laughs> it's it's exciting as well as a little bit, you know, stressful um, because, you know, the concept of like monetizing open source can be a hot topic at the best of times. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the real the sort of uh, the epiphany to me was when somebody said, like, this is exactly what I want, but I won't run it. <laughs> you know, mm. if you run it, I would pay you. And then I realized, okay, this is why I'm going to work on this because it's fun. Um, but I think it it tends itself towards being a service. Um, and it also tends itself, as we just talked about, towards having a network effect where the more people using it, yeah. the better it can be for everybody. And uh, that's essentially been the motivation. Um but, uh, you know, until now, I've been running it as a free app. Um, it currently supports around like 500 installs and about 5,000 projects on GitHub, um, which is quite a lot of scale, um, and at least <laughs> at least to me. Um, but, That's a lot. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I'm pretty, I'm pretty chuffed with it. Like, I, you know, I still remember when you, when you, when you, when each day you like, you see it go from like 25 to 26 or something like that, you know? Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been going very well, but. Um, Plus with some big names using it, you got Algolia, Google Chrome Labs, Mozilla, you mentioned Angular. So you have like some very significant projects that are dependent on this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's super exciting whenever I, um, 
see big names on the installs. Um, it's 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 very like flattering almost, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really nice. How do you track the installs? Is it currently is it currently a service, or these are like their own installed version of versions of it, or is it? This- oh yeah, right. So these these are actually only the people who have installed renovate on public repositories on GitHub. I, I have a, uh, not that probably anybody's read it, but I have a, a point in my terms and conditions that say, if you install Renovate on a public repository, we have the right to use your logo and your, uh, you know, your name without further permission. But, you mm-hmm. know, if you hate that, you can tell us and I'll remove it within seven days. So mm-hmm. I put that because, uh, you know, it's better to like, uh, you know, beg forgiveness and ask permission. So those, yeah. that that list of customers is actually, or I should say users, no one's paying. That list of users <laughs> is, um, that's only ones that have installed it publicly. I actually have, there's, there's how would I say, there's other like, uh, there's other unicorns, we'll say, that are like, you know, running it privately that I'm aware of. But I, you know, I don't put their logo up because I haven't asked them and. You know, it's self-hosted, so uh, right. That's their well, own business. So I guess the way then to get this into an open source application is to go to GitHub.com/apps/renovate, which is linked to from your README, and that's the way. You, there's a big green button up in the top right. You click install, and then you mm-hmm. choose the repository to install it into. Is that is that the process? Yeah, that's right. I mean, GitHub uh, gives you the option of either installing it on all repositories or selectively, you know, picking them one by one. Um, that interface is not particularly friendly, so a lot of people end up, you know, ticking all um, out of you know, convenience. Um, but yeah, basically, you install it, you pick which repositories you want it to run on, and the next thing that happens is it gives you like an onboarding pull request, and that one does nothing except say, okay, here's our recommended default config, and if you use this, then here's what will happen next. You know, you'll expect like seven pull requests, and here's what they'll look like. Um, it gives people the ability to then edit that pull request, you know, edit the config, you know, to add these exceptions, these configurations and run it and run immediately and like give you an updated, you know, prediction. So like if you started with here's your seven pull requests and then someone adds a preset that says group all together, then, you know, it'll it, you know, hopefully within like a minute or something will update to then say you'll have one pull request called mm-hmm. update all packages, you know. So it's like a, a sort of like an interactive onboarding where nothing happens until you then, you know, click the button. Um, to to merge. What happens, I guess the first step is to either choose all or choose the repo. Then you have to add a config to your repo. Is that right? So that's actually a file that lives in your repo? Yeah, that's right. It is actually possible to run it without a config file. So if you actually just close uh, that onboarding pull request, that's good enough to get it to start. I mean, because you've already installed it on the repo, so clearly you want it. Right. Um, so it is possible to do it without a config file. What that means is you just get the application defaults. And those are the ones which I'll call, you know, fairly unopinionated. Over time, over major leases, I've often changed default settings for um, for configuration to make them sort of like, I'm trying to kind of describe it, less... Uh, Action, less, less action. I'm missing the word, but you know, less, less volatile. Like it, it by it does less by default as each one goes on, meaning that people kind of opt in to things. So, um, you know, for example, in the very earliest releases, it said it was a bit more opinionated and it said, "Let's pin everything. Let's do this." Whereas now, you know, you kind of have to like opt into that if if that's what you wish. I mean, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll attempt to auto detect. I guess this couples with potentially a new announcement. I think this is fairly new for you too, which is, you know, inclusion in GitHub's marketplace. Can you, do you want to speak about that? Can you talk about those details? Yeah, absolutely. How does that reflect back on the, 
the two different processes to install it, so, so to speak? Yeah. So, um, you know, to be, to be a part of GitHub's marketplace, you don't have to actually be like a GitHub app. You know, you could be like an OAuth app or things like that. So the, it's, the two are very closely related, but not like tied to the hip. Um, so, you know, if you go and install the app um, without going through the marketplace, uh, it will install and run and give you the onboarding. And very soon, not today, but very soon, um, it'll start giving people polite reminders that it is necessary to select a plan. Um, that, sorry, that's only if they're actually on a private repository, I should add. But so soon it'll start prompting people to say like, you know, renovate is available on the GitHub marketplace, you know, please select a plan. Um, and then uh, eventually we'll run out of patience and say, you know, well, you've got like seven days left or something like that. So that's that's my planned approach to how to kind of nudge people onto the plans if their use is um, in private repositories rather yeah, this than This is only source. private repos, not open source Correct. Repos. Correct. So that's a that's a clear distinction there. Exactly. I mean, and that's that's a pretty you know standard GitHub business you know GitHub add on business model is yeah. that like open source is always free. Yeah. Sometimes people have to have like reasonable use limits, but you know it's been going pretty well so far. Um, you know, like I said, it's like about five thousand projects, and uh, that's that's been fairly manageable. So I think that um, we can continue managing um, with you know open source being free indefinitely. Does it make sense to mention this? I don't know if this is like brand new or how long this will be real, but it seems like you maybe even have an opening special for personal plans. It's like a dollar a month. Is that legit <laughs> forever? Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's challenging when you go from like a free offering to saying to people, you know, Give can me you some pay money. me? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I thought that one of the nicest ways I could do that is in a kind of almost like a Kickstarter-like approach where it's like, you know, your earliest backers, you know, get the best price. And uh, so that's why it's it's opened with this like opening special where um, it's a price that will be, as you were sort of asking, will be grandfathered in because that's actually GitHub's um, policy. GitHub's policy is that like if you sell someone a plan at price X, then you keep delivering it basically indefinitely until that person cancels it. Yeah. Um, and that works really well because that what that is allowing me to do is to offer this kind of opening special prices and I can, uh, starting tomorrow, I'll be, um, pointing some of the people I know have been using it for a long time and saying, Hey, like sign up with this, you'll get that price forever. And thank you for being, you know, helping promote renovate. Um, and I thought that, you know, having this kind of carrot approach to pricing rather than the stick approach, which says like pay up now or else you've had long enough. Uh, I thought that might be a nice way of kind of transitioning where, yeah. You offer the existing users a price that they know is is really really fair. A um, dollar a month is really fair. Yeah, for most. I things. mean, that's the uh, that's the that's the um, the personal plan. That's for the personal mm -hmm. accounts. And like I remember, I was I would have been willing to pay like five ten minimum kind of thing. So I'm like, I think a dollar is good. Mm -hmm. um, and people can sign up and lock that in. Um, and another reason for charging a dollar and not saying free is that I know that like if I sign up to a service and they've got like a free plan that suits me. I always have a concern that like one day they're going to say, you know what, we can't keep offering that. And it's now like 35 bucks a month or something like that. Like they'll go from free to a price that you just is just not valuable to you. It doesn't, it doesn't match with the value. So I personally prefer to have something where I can be like, okay, I'm a paying customer of them and I get this price. Um, and I, and I know that, well, they'll hopefully, you know, there's a good chance that they'll grandfather that in. So mm -hmm. that's another part of my line of thinking is that um, 
not so much just like, oh, I worry whether they'll be sustainable because you know a dollar a month's not really going to help with that. But it's more like, ah, oh, but I know I've got a price locked in and that I like. So this is the, you know, this is the approach I'm taking. So, I mean, I know it's tough to to ask this question, but, and I won't ask you for the five-year plan, but give me, <laughs> give me some time yeah. span that's reasonable for you to, to, to share with the listening audience, like where Renovate is going, where are you uh, have dreams about going and, you know, considering mm. now you're in marketplace, it's becoming, you know, a paid for product that can sustain itself and grow. Like what are some plans you're, what's on the horizon for you? What's next? Yeah. So, well, I obviously hope that there'll be a good, um, you know, take up from the marketplace. The marketplace itself can be very good um, exposure. You know, people finding it via the marketplace that wouldn't have otherwise heard about it. You know, like you guys hadn't heard about it, for example. Right. We, we um, should hear about it, right, Jared? I mean. Yeah. I'm glad Nicholas told us because, I mean, without Nicholas, yeah, thanks, we'd Nicholas. be in the dark still yet. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We need this. We need Thank you, Nicholas. Support. Yeah. So, look, my, my long-term, uh, long-ish term, I should say, plan for Renovate is um, fundamentally it, it remains an open-source first tool with a very good core that you can run yourself yeah, if that's what you want to do. Um, I plan and hope that a lot of people, though, prefer to have the app. Like, I, I'm only aware of one um, – company who is running their own app you know their own you know bot whatever you want to call it um on like github.com you know meaning that most people it is free but i still think that uh the convenience of having someone else watch it monitor it alarm it and things like that and save the logs um i think that'll benefit um i also plan to add some things to the app that you know are not really easy to do in like an open source, like, you know, command line tool. And that's things like a web interface to view a history. Like, were there any like failed attempts yesterday or what was the log from, you know, three hours ago when it created this pull request that looks a little bit weird to me, you know, things like that. Um, and that's only possible when you're like, actually like, you know, keeping state, storing logs, providing a, you know, a web interface and so on. So I think that, um, you know, the, the tool can remain a, a very powerful, open source tool um, while the app can provide, you know, what you expect from an app, you know, when things are as a service rather than, you know, just simply software. Very cool. Well, um, I know I'm excited. I think this was, you know, an eye opening topic for me because, you know, automating something can be pretty scary. Uh, like Jared said, he hasn't found a reasonable tool to do it for ourselves. So we've been basically wasting time and money and I'd be excited to to have Jared have more of his time back so we can, make some more money or find just different fun things to do. And it's just such right, a shame yeah. that there's so many, like you just repeat that 50,000 times when people wasting their time and money updating dependencies that, you know, renovate could save so much, you know, out there and automate it so much too. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My, my goal is that there's always some setting or some level that works for everybody. So, you know, for anybody who thinks it's not right for them, I mean, I assume there must be something that is right. Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, well, if it just did this, cause we've got some ideas and, uh, if, um, if I find that people like them, then I think there's a few other like approaches and models that could be used. Yeah. Well, Reese, thank you so much for sharing your story and, and your passion for this project and, you know, your commitment to open source and just, you know, sharing the details around a sometimes tough subject, you know, of, of open source to business and how you balance all that so i know it's tough but thank you so much for sharing your time today and and all your ideas with the show 
yeah, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure and thanks for your time as well. All right, that's it for this episode of The Change Log. If you enjoyed this show, do us a favor, go into Apple Podcasts, go into Overcast, go into whatever app you're using, favorite it, like it, share it, tweet it, whatever. Just get it out there, share it with a friend, help us grow the show. And thank you to our sponsors, Linode, Gliffy, and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, at Fastly.com to learn more. Rollbar takes care of our error monitoring. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. The Changelog is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. This edit was done by Jonathan Youngblood. Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com or on Overcast or on Apple Podcast or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Go there, search for The Changelog. You will find us. We'll see you next week.